Hello and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan and my guest today is Emily Winslow. Her memoir, Jane Doe January, is just out from Morrow and I'm delighted to, to talk with you about it today, Emily. Thank you for having me. So now I understand that you've come all the way from England to, to be here in America as this book comes out. Uh, yes, but New York is also uh, in a way coming home. I grew up very near here. Part of What's going on in this memoir? You know, I'm actually going to circle back to something that you say towards the end before we get into the particulars of your story. You talk about how as you were transforming this from a diary that you were keeping as the events that we'll talk about were going on into a memoir form of narrative. There's three words that you use, direct, vivid, and compassionate, and that those were what you had in mind as you were setting out to write this. And I want to talk about a little bit about how that mindset or, or getting into that mindset shaped your writing. Direct to me was a way of saying honest, but not just honest, not dancing around what I was thinking or feeling or what I wanted. Vivid was I wanted to really make people understand what was happening and what the experience was like for me. And, and compassionate it's how I wanted to approach myself. It's how I wanted to approach the other people in the story. I wanted to try to, I guess, be kind uh, to the other people that I was writing about as well. What happens is, for, for those of you who are coming to this fresh, in 1992, as a college student... Uh, it was uh, Christmas break of my junior year, two days before school was about to start. I went out to run an errand. I came home. A man followed me into the building. Uh, he forced his way into my apartment and he raped me. And so part of the early part of the memoir, the opening chapters, is about coming to terms with that in its immediate aftermath. But the bulk of the story is years later. Eventually, DNA turns up a suspect. In 2013, that was 21 years later. They made a match, actually, with a case that was linked to mine, very similar to mine, that had happened in the same year, but 10 months later, just a few streets away. And that's when I got contacted by the detectives who said that they were arresting this man for what he had done to her. But they felt pretty confident that testing of my kit would link him to my case as well, which it did prove to do. And this is something that you had been sort of intermittently pursuing over the 21 years, probably more frequently at first, but you had gotten kind of resigned over the years too. There was a time when it was, you know, every three years, but actually in the two years before the arrest, I had been very active contacting the police, which is why they knew uh, where to reach me. Otherwise, you know, they would have had old information. I was completely shocked when they said that they had identified him and that there was an arrest because I had assumed you know, I was begging for them to start the process. I was begging for them to put my evidence kit into the crime lab testing queue. You know, I thought eventually, if we ever did one day get a hit in the CODIS database, which is what I was hoping for, and find out who this person was, I thought that would be the end of a process that hadn't even started yet, as far as I knew. So even though I had been in pretty persistent touch with the police in the year and a half, two years before the arrest, when they did arrest him, that was completely out of nowhere, as far as I was concerned. And just to remind everybody, you had moved to England many years prior to this. Uh, you were living in Cambridge. 
Although, you, you, as, as you mentioned, you grew up around the New York City area. You went to college at Pittsburgh. You, you, you've lived in America for a while before getting married and moving back to England. So you're doing all of this from the opposite end of the Atlantic. Yes. And, I mean, thank goodness for modern technology and all of that. I found, actually, that sometimes doing something from a distance can keep it more focused and on point when you're not there to sort of have conversation after conversation about it, decisions actually get made. You you send an email, you ask a question, an answer is sent back. Sometimes I think the distance can help focus conversation. But it also created a logistical hurdle in terms of, I mean, I don't think there was ever any doubt in your mind that once you, certainly once you knew that they had a suspect and they had apprehended him, that it was likely to go to trial, you were coming out back. You were Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It was logistically complicated, but the distance was also a gift because it kept my two worlds very separate. You know, they were very, very different places, just culturally very different. All the people I was interacting with uh, were very different. The circumstances very different. And so home, being so far away and having to, to make that great journey to come to to testify. It was a nice way of separating it from home and sort of keeping home safe from this uh, this strange thing from my past that had sort of risen up again. And at the same time, you also talk a little bit about how, although on one level you were keeping, you were compartmentalizing that experience uh, or, or the, the process of the trial from your home life. There's also a sort of sense of palpable frustration that you talk about in terms of trying to get the emotional support that you need from, particularly from friends in in Cambridge. And part of it was just sort of a, a very different culture where it's, or not that they're distant, it's just a different way of relating. Absolutely. When the crime had happened, I had been very, very open about it. And everybody who knew me knew that it had happened. It was something that was freely discussed. And that was great. And then life went on and, you know, I moved to another city and maybe I tell a few people what happened and then life moves on again and I moved to another city and maybe I tell a couple of people what happened. By the time I moved to England in 2006, it was so distant. I, I wasn't purposely keeping the crime a secret, but it had just happened so long ago and there was never any reason to bring it up. When this prosecution began in 2013, I was in a country where... Literally only my husband knew about it, not anybody else. That was very tricky because I needed a lot of support about, you know, preparing to testify and waiting on the lab results and and all these very stressful things that I was facing. And in order to talk about that with people, I had to go back and explain the crime itself, which is, of course, you know, that's very emotional and and it's, it's a difficult thing for people to hear. You know, it's not just that I was in England, I was in Cambridge, which is, it's it's a very, in some ways, a very formal culture. And I love that about it, but it made it very, very difficult. People thought they were being kind by pretending that the prosecution wasn't happening. And actually, that, that hurt me terribly. Because you're like, no, I need to talk about this. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, even when I started it, I was willing to start the conversation. And with Americans, you know, if I would start the conversation and show willing to talk about it, then an American would ask me a question back and I'd answer that. And then they'd ask another question. And we'd sort of build it together uh, till we got through the whole thing. But the, um, yeah, they were, they were terrified of misstepping. You know, if I, if I was willing to talk about one piece of it, 
they still felt terrified to, you know, that, well, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm willing to talk about this other piece, that sort of thing. But I, I hope it's evident, you know, as the book goes on, that we did figure each other out. And by the time we get to uh, when I'm, I'm getting ready to go off to trial, they really were there for me in a wonderful way. And, and I'm also very happy to say that throughout the whole process of turning it into a proper book and process of publication, that those friendships and relationships have grown even closer. So it's just, it just breaking the ice to say, this isn't just something we're allowed to talk about. This is something we have to talk about if you are my friend. Getting to that point, it was difficult, but it has been really worth it. Circling back to you know what I had mentioned at the beginning about your desire to write with compassion, it seemed to me as I was reading this that a key part of that was putting yourself in that position of okay these people are these people are inflicting great emotional pain on me as I'm going through this process but understanding that it's like well they're certainly not doing it deliberately right and putting yourself in a in an empathetic position in a compassionate position of being able to understand well why are they relating to me this way and what can I do to get them to relate to me in in the way that I need at this t- at this point in time for my regular job, I write crime novels, and that experience of writing those novels, writing about these crime stories where something horrible happens in the beginning, and then what happens after, what can be done after this horrible thing, was really very helpful. All of my crime novels are told by multiple first-person narrators, and you know everybody goes in there with their, their selfish point of view. Naturally selfish, I don't mean that as a judgment. It's just, you know, you, you go in there as you, seeing things as you see them. And as a writer, I try to find all those surprises where, you know, one character is convinced somebody is doing something, you know, out of meanness or cruelty or whatever, and then you see it from the other side and, and you can learn that actually that person was meaning something else altogether. And I think having that that foundation as a writer of understanding that, each character's point of view is very limited and putting myself into that position as a limited character telling the memoir was very helpful. As you say, you write crime fiction. As part of this process, you get like a, a much deeper insider perspective on you know, the order side of the law and order process than certainly I think than you've ever had. I have never years. written a courtroom scene. <laughs> on the one hand, I mean, obviously you're going through this with your personal perspective uh, and everything that it means to you emotionally and personally to be going through this process. But is there also a part of you that is sitting there taking, oh, okay, so you know, it's sort of the writer part of you. One of the things that amazed me when I was learning about all the, the legal and procedural aspects here is just how much each state is its own little kingdom. And so it's not just a matter of U.S. law and procedure versus U.K. law and procedure, because my, my fiction is set in the U.K., but even from state to state, the quirks in the law are just completely, completely bizarre and vary so much from place to place. I think I may have ended up more intimidated about attempting to write a courtroom scene after my experience with it than maybe I was before. You mentioned statute of limitations there, and I want to rope back to that for a second, because that actually is a key factor in the very beginning. It was the DNA evidence, as I recall, that specifically made this prosecution possible, because as you say, every state has different um, statute of limitations on on rape and other sexual assault crimes. Without that DNA evidence, what happens to you would no longer have been prosecutable. Yes. So the first 
I think it was six years uh, after the crime. I was keeping in touch. And it absolutely shocked me. I think it was in 98 or possibly 99 when I made my regular little phone call to the Pittsburgh Sex Assault Unit and, you know, would get introduced to yet another detective because there's so much turnover and have to explain my case from scratch and say, hey, you know, I just want to say, please keep looking. Please, you know, keep me apprised. And that was the first I'd ever heard about statute of limitations. They just told me that it was it was over. My case couldn't be pursued anymore. I did keep in touch for years after that because I, I had hope that even if my case couldn't be prosecuted, I still wanted to find out who it was, and I knew that my evidence had DNA. I kept asking them to process it even if it's not a prosecutable case. We offered to pay for it. They said, well, that's certainly not allowed, and I can understand that. But once it became past the statute of limitations, it did feel like it was almost insurmountable. It's in 2004 that the law, a law in Pennsylvania, was passed that allowed cases past their statute of limitations to be reopened for a single year if they have new DNA evidence that identifies a previously unsuspected person. And it's under that law that this case was pursued. And as it was pursued, one of the things that people often said to you as they found out that, that you were doing this, you know, they talked about how brave you must be or, or how you were seeking closure. And I, I was struck by what you wrote about, about how you said, it's like, no, this isn't brave at all. And it's not even bringing me closure. Well, I was doing exactly what I wanted to do. The word brave has a connotation of virtue to it, that you're doing something in order to be good, something that's hard, but that you know is right. And I don't feel virtuous about what I did. It, yes, it was scary, but I wanted what I wanted more than the scariness was scary. Right. I mean, you wanted this guy put away. It's, exactly. Yeah. It's not that it was going to bring you closure. It was that it was going to punish him for what he did. There was this tension between, you know, is this is this revenge or is this justice or, you know, all these big words that describe it. And some people, you know, there were so many feelings. All of the feelings were there. And some people focus on the anger and some people focus on wanting to forgive but not being sure what that means. And, yeah, there was there was a lot there. You mentioned a little while back about how one of your realizations as you were writing this out, as, as you were transforming it into a, a quote-unquote real book from mm -hmm. the notes you were in the journal entries from before, is, you know, something that you, you know, what you had learned from your crime fiction about recognizing yourself as a character with limited perspective. Yes. Um, and I want to sort of flip that on its side and ask about what, you might have learned in the process of writing this memoir that could go on to subsequently inform future crime fiction. Part of the memoir, particularly in the first chapter where I'm writing about 1992, I quote uh, some poems that I wrote in the year after the crime. That is the year that I became good at writing. I don't think you have to go through something terrible to become a good writer. I think that would be terrible. Um, I like to think I would have stumbled across this, uh, this transition on my own just by growing up. But the experience for me was that going through this terrible thing and being so broken by it and so not in control of all the things that I was feeling and being so unable to pretend that everything was okay made me 
become much more compassionate to myself and much more compassionate in the way I wrote. I kind of dropped all pretense of idealism. I'm, I'm still an idealistic person. I'm still a very hopeful person. But I guess I dropped the, the pretense of this is the ideal character. This is what the ideal character would do. And trying to make my characters people I aspired to be and trying to, to fit some expectation and just letting the characters be who they are because I was, I was letting myself be who I am. As for how writing the memoir itself is going to affect my fiction, it has been strange going back to fiction. I'm in, I'm in the middle of writing the next novel. It's the fourth one and it's actually based on a, a start that I had written in the month before the arrest. And then once the arrest happened, I just, I couldn't work on that anymore, so I put it aside. But I'm finishing it now, and going back to fiction at first was very hard, because it's a lot of work having to make it all up. Uh, whereas for the, the year of the prosecution, I was just literally writing down what was happening around me and what was happening inside of me. You were also writing all that down, and but at that time, you weren't necessarily thinking, it's like, Wow, this is going to be a great book. You were just writing it down, get it down. No, you are wrong about Ooh, that. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, for me, I mean, you know, people talk about writing about traumatic experiences as being therapeutic because it helps you get it out of you. And that is true. But for me, that is step one. For me, what's therapeutic about it is not just letting it out. It's letting it out and picking it up and using my skills and using my talents to make something that stands alone apart from me apart from the crime, and is something beautiful. I wanted to write a beautiful book. I wanted to write a book that was interesting. So for me, the therapeutic aspect wasn't just letting it out. It was, from the very start, crafting it. Because that's this is what I do. I, I use words. That's what I do. What was the reaction from your, your agent and your editors? Uh, at, w at what point did you let them in on the, the news that it's like, that this is what you were doing. So when I started writing it down, at first I only shared it with friends who were either writers themselves or were in publishing because I was worried that if I shared it with people outside of the writing world that they might be kind of creeped out that I was writing about something so sad or so upsetting and, you know, what's wrong with you? But I knew that people in the writing world would understand that these things are, are important to write about. So actually, my novel editor and my agent knew about it fairly early on as friends. I wasn't giving it to them as, hey, here's the next thing, you know, that, that we're going to sell. But yeah, they, they read it as, as friends bit by bit as it was being created. You had mentioned a few minutes ago when we were talking about discussing all this with your friends in Cambridge about how in the period since the book has been completed and it's come out that, that those relationships have, have deepened and, and blossomed or become more fulfilling in ways that they weren't while this process was going on. Now that the book is fully out in the world, I assume there as well as here in America. Not quite. Not uh, quite. Okay. End of June. End of June. Yeah. Okay. But it's, it's, Getting, it's coming. <laughs> it's getting to the point where even, say, like, friends of friends who may have known that something was going on with you, even if they weren't sure what, so pretty soon they're going to know. Yeah, that's going to be interesting, isn't it? Well, see, I've, I've never minded before that people know. In fact, it, it seems odder to me when they didn't know because it's such an important piece of my life. So I guess I'm hoping it will continue to feel even more right and normal that people know, as opposed to surprising or worrying. 
I think too that I mean this is something that we haven't really touched upon much yet in the conversation, but talking about it and and putting this story forward also you know normalizes this experience in a way. I mean this this is not something that happens infrequently to yes. to women in in America and around the world, but it's something that for various reasons people often don't like to talk about. And and, and as you you know. For you, you know, in this time, it was, you know, this had happened 20 years ago. It was no longer as defining of your contemporary life as it was then. But even when it, when it happens, I mean, your experience where you were in a community within your college major where everyone was incredibly supportive and, and open about it, that is not the norm. That isn't the norm, but gosh, wouldn't it be wonderful if it was? There's a scene near the end of the book. Uh, just a short description of a dinner party in Cambridge the night before I fly to Pittsburgh for the last time. I, I just mentioned in passing that, that the conversation is just it. You know, people ask me about the prosecution. Of course, it's on people's minds. I'm about to fly. So we talk about that, and then we talk about books, and we talk about the prosecution, and we talk about music, and we talk about the prosecution, and we talk about our kids. And it's all, I think there's a fear that, if you start talking about this horrible thing, that it'll just take over, that it'll just become this sort of swamp monster, that just, it, it's, it'll become what everything is about. And in my experience, it is, it is just a part of my life. It's just a part. And we can still talk about books and music and our kids. It was wonderful getting to that point where, where we all experienced that together, where the subject wasn't something that we needed to be afraid of, that it was going to, take over. Well, there is so much more to talk about in this process uh, that we haven't even touched upon, but I want people to read this book for themselves and get the full story of what happens to you uh, and what happened around you as, as you pursued this. Uh, I have been talking with Emily Winslow. The memoir is Jane Doe January. It's just out from Morrow now, and I want everybody to go out and read it. This has been the Life Stories podcast. I'm Ron Hogan. If you like what you've heard, I hope you'll go to the iTunes store and give it a couple stars. Actually, give it a lot of stars and uh, write a nice review for it and tell folks to download it and listen to it as well. Thanks, and I'll look forward to sharing another interview with you soon. Take care.